we're in a part of this letter written by the Apostle Paul that has been known by scholars today as this thing called a great digression. It's kind of like he's gone, he started talking about one thing and then has digressed into this story, into this line of thought about uh, what he calls the new covenant. It's the ministry that he is a minister of, that, that he holds dear, and it's centered on the death and resurrection of Christ. It's the gospel. And Paul is outlining the way the new covenant we're under works. And he's writing this down to make some clear distinctions between the gospel that he preaches and the one that appears to be making the rounds in other places where he's already been. In this case, the city of ancient Corinth. We don't know all the details of who these people are or the entire message, but we do have some glimpses of the content based on what Paul has been writing. Last week's passage, we had a bit of this and that going on. Paul had a gospel that he called this ministry. By a simple process of deduction, we can suggest the false gospel was that ministry. We learned from Paul last week that this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the gospel he preaches, speaks light into darkness that makes blind eyes see. You know what? When I came to faith... It felt like I was seeing for the first time again. And I think we could all say the same thing. All of a sudden, whoa, the lights are on. And as this takes place, that light reveals the glory and even the deity of Christ. We realize that Jesus is God. This ministry is also described by Paul as treasure. Stored in earthenware jars. What a great image. I was going to have some imagery up there, but we don't have time today. There's nothing spectacular about the messengers of this gospel. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing special about you. We're intentionally unspectacular because if all the attention was on how spectacular the message was, the messenger was, the messenger, the message itself might actually be might lose its glory because we are taking it all for ourselves. I believe it's intentional that it's the unspectacular, it is the, the, the mundane things, being ordained by the Spirit to teach the ordained message of God. It's a case of ordinary vessels delivering the extraordinary wonders of God. And Paul goes on to call it preaching ourselves as nothing more than servants, and preaching Jesus as nothing less than Lord. And he does say there's even a bit of a cost to it, this side of eternity. In his case, pressures, persecutions, and the mark of martyrdom. And the word witness, we tell everybody, let's go out there and witness. Witness comes from the word martyr. Martyrs is the Greek word for witness. It's this idea that we, whether we live or die, we will proclaim Jesus. But there's also victory to be found as well. And the rest of the chapter points to that. We're going to read uh, the last part of chapter 4 and we'll go into chapter 5 a bit later real briefly. And I just want to set the complete an idea so that uh, John Barrows has a clear run next week without undoing all my work. So we'll start at chapter 4 verse 13 today. So, And we'll look at this. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. 
All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Keep your thumb in your Bibles. We'll come back to chapter 5 shortly. Have you ever had a moment? You know, there's this great thing when you read the Bible. When you engage with the Scriptures and engage with that, that, that text and... It's not just another storybook. Have you noticed that? Have you ever had those moments where you open it up and a verse just bounces at you? It hits you hard and goes, oh my goodness, that is speaking into me right now, right? Who's had that moment? Put your hand up if you've had that moment. Oh, it makes so much sense now. I've read that 20 times and now it makes sense. Or, oh my goodness, I've never faced this problem before that suddenly that verse makes sense. The, verse, the first verse in this section that I was read out is Paul's experience of that very thing. Something in the Old Testament has bounced at him, bounced out at him, and it's speaking right into where he's at. Paul, being a Jew, would have had a good practice of, being, of deep interaction with the Psalms. It would have been his prayers. It was the ancient prayers. It was the ancient songs of Israel. And right now, Psalm 116 is bouncing off the page for him. And all we get out of it is, it is written. (laughs) But I wonder if you can capture the joy with which that is being written. It is written. In a brief nutshell, the psalm itself speaks of despair and being in the clutches of death but also speaks in a big way of the work of God bringing the psalmist back from the brink. Paul has been in that place, and he's clearly stated that early on in this letter. The despair that was on full display was there. It was in chapter 1. The pressures have been real, the mark of death ever so clear in his life, the persecutions, the accusations. And this stuff going on in Corinth is the last thing he needed, but the call of the new covenant meant that he needed to rise above those things. And he's writing very victoriously now. Because focusing on the new covenant, focusing on what really matters, and not his hardships, and not his opponents, is allowing him to do that. And this passage, this section of the letter shows that the new covenant makes him think about two major things at this time. Resurrection, again, and eternity, again. Beginning with his reflection on Psalm 116, the spirit who inspired the writing of that psalm is also the God who rose Christ from the dead. That's a good link. This same God who who 
ordained the psalm, who rose Christ from the dead, is also clearly present and in their midst. And this same is God has been writing his law on the hearts of his people. And this same God is allowing more of his glory to be seen. And Paul writes here that this same God who rose Christ is also going to raise us and bring him to himself, bring us to himself. And the presence and the ministry of God that lifted the head of the psalmist is also lifting the head of Paul as well. I wonder if we can even take that further. If the psalm is written of a guy whose head is lifted by the Spirit, the comfort of the Spirit. And then Paul is benefiting from that same psalm and lifting his head. And then we are, 2,000 years later, able to both reflect on the psalm and on Paul and in the midst of our despair still lift our head. It's amazing. Paul has new perspective and a perspective that we should have also. Even if he suffers, the gospel makes space for more and more people to give glory to God. But there's these false guys over there in Corinth and they had no desire to bring glory to God. They had no desire to attract followers of Jesus. They were all about building their own audience and, and, and drawing admirers of themselves and, and being the glorious vessel themselves. But we know that any glory they attract for themselves would be temporary. Any comfort that they're enjoying in this life or in this supposed ministry, that ministry, right now, would not be of lasting value. And in contrast to that, Paul, who is existing, is sitting in discomfort, who is sitting in hardship, says that those hardships are light and momentary. The false leaders, their glory is light and momentary, but Paul's hardships are light and momentary also. Now, when I read that verse and then I think about this, I go, wow, where's Paul really at? Is he a bit deluded? He hasn't had those extended times in prison just yet. That's still to come. But Paul has been arrested a lot. He's been physically abused. He's had to run for his life. He's had false teachers try to undo his work in many locations. He'll give a rundown of the degree of his afflictions in a few chapters' time. I don't want to steal his thunder. I'll let him state it out shortly. But I'd have to say this. If I got to his age, and in 2020... I roughly will. And if I had his resume of affliction, I don't know if I'd be calling it momentary and light. And I think some of us here, if we were going through it and had that sort of resume of affliction too, we'd all struggle. How do you call this momentary and light? It ain't momentary in the moment. It ain't light when you're carrying it. 
Paul calls it this because he's able to zoom out and we're able to see the full extent of Paul's perspective of this today. If I were to write, I don't know, affliction, pain, something like this on my hand, and then I held it up to my face, and then you go, what do you see, Ken? What am I seeing? I'm seeing darkness and pain right now, aren't I? I'm seeing darkness, I'm seeing pain. And that's all I see. Nothing is momentary up here. Everything seems permanent. Everything, no other thing has my perspective right now. All I see is darkness and pain. But what if I take that and I hold it against something much bigger? And you go, Cam, what do you see? I see a little bit of pain, but I see something else around it. I see other things. Because I've been able to zoom out. Paul has zoomed out in his... He's in this big picture place and he's seeing by faith the reality of the Spirit. My struggles, my afflictions, yeah, they're big. But they're not anywhere near as big as eternity. In the scheme of things, what I'm going through, compared to what is to come, It's light and it's momentary. He says in eternity, all that we consider glorious now, all that we've ever seen or imagined, will be swallowed up by the greatest glory of all. Moses and what his ministry was, was glorious. But the glory of the gospel is greater and swallows up the former glory. And in eternity, the glory of God will be completely unfiltered. It will be completely unreflected and we will behold it with our own eyes. We will see the full, unadulterated, unhidden glory of God for ourselves. And all these things will mean nothing. That didn't bode well for the false teachers who thought their own glory was any of, of any value. It doesn't bode well for those of us today who attach glory to things other than the Lord. Sometimes we put our hurts and give it too much glory. Sometimes we take our broken relationships and give that more glory. Sometimes we take our circumstances and give that more glory than we do the Lord. We give it more attention, we give it more affection, we give it more close held. We draw comfort from it somehow. And the comfort that the Spirit wants to give instead gets pushed away. Some things get more glory than the Lord and that's not right. Instead, Paul challenges us here to lock our sights on eternity. For that's where the true glory is. 
any hardship we face here and now is momentary and light. And if it's for the Lord, it's worth going through. Let me just round out this thought briefly. Let's keep going to chapter 5 and we'll read the next just a few verses here. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Here we see some dynamics of life on the other side of eternity. And it's building on what Paul has already written extensively in other places, 1 Corinthians 15 being one of them. References to tents and dwellings here are not about real estate, but about the dwellings of our internal makeup. Right now there is a part of us that is quite temporary and a part of us part of it that is not some divide it up as body and spirit others go one further call it body soul and spirit however you want to do that at this time both the body and the spirit are dependent on each other to exist as a human being you take a body without a spirit what do you have a corpse take a spirit without a body what do you have for want of a better word a ghost They are dependent on each other to exist as a being. But right now, they also have a number of disagreements with each other. The carnal mind, the flesh, is hostile to God. And yet our spirits want to know the living God. The quote of Jesus used at the camp over the weekend, the flesh is willing, but the spirit, the flesh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul's going to address that idea a little bit later on, but for now he simply describes the body we live in now as an earthly tent. Paul was in the business of doing work on tents. He was like a canvas or skins worker and would make dwellings with that stuff. And everywhere he would go when he didn't have income from a church, he would, do, he would actually set up shop as a tent maker and it always seemed he did okay out of it. Because as you might think, tents are one of the more frail dwellings out there. If it's beaten and battered by the wind, it's going to tear, right? Eventually you need to do repairs to a tent. 
Even the constant opening and closing wears it out, right? And our bodies, even if we're redeemed, has a frail quality about it. But in eternity, a building or a house, by this he means a far more permanent and robust dwelling place. A building or a house from God awaits. It's not made by human hands, so it can only come from glory. It will be made of life, no hint of death to be found in it. And the mystery of all this is that it will somehow be physical. In this passage, we are clothed in the tent or we are clothed in the house. Occupation of a body is a state of play on both sides of eternity. And if that's not the case, then Paul uses the word nakedness and it's spoken of in a way where it's not desired. So to think of eternity as a time where a disembodied spirit sort of floats around the sky up there somewhere. It's not quite the vision of eternity that the apostles want us to know. And although we've seen this mentioned before, we now have an idea come completely clear. Because this is coming, live like that is happening now. Newness and completeness is coming. What the Bible sometimes translates as perfection is coming. Full maturity is coming. It's what the state of play will be when eternity comes, when the kingdom is, has become the eternal kingdom. Fully realised. Therefore, anticipation should be brewing for that. And even if you've been a believer a short time, you may all know, already notice that transformation has already begun. A week into my faith, I was talking differently. A week into my faith, I was thinking differently. I was seeing things differently. Why? Because the Spirit was already beginning His transforming work. And I hope that's the story for all of us here as we engage with our faith. The anticipation in this passage is in the words groaning and longing. We groan for the house that is to come. Paul has this deep desire. Even though there's still mission left in him, even though there's still life to be lived on this planet, in this time, in this space and time, in this era, there is also the deep desire to become the thing that God is already planning him to be. There's anticipation of what will be in his life and the way he lives his life. Do you anticipate completeness in the way you live your life? Or do we just live in the now and just go, you know what, I can't be anything, I can't do away with anything. I can't get over addictions. I can't beat things in my life. I can't get rid of that sin. I can't. Or is there a way of life that is anticipating what is to come? There's anticipation and there is transformation. And this is found in the deposit of the Spirit. 
and also Paul's reference to the judgment to come. And both of those things occur before there's any talk of a new body. At salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit. This is the risen Jesus taking up residence in us and coming alongside us. And we can know God through the work of the Spirit in our life. It's spoken of as a deposit here. Sometimes deposits are good things. Sometimes deposits things are deposits are nervous things. Jen and I have been to Thailand twice. We've gone to Phuket. We've been bombarded like some of you may have in those places. It's really funny how you've got all these shops. Jimmy Versace, Mr. Hugo Boss. And Jimmy Versace comes up to me and goes, mate, you need to buy a suit. You've got to buy shirts. Come and buy off me. Come on. And, and every second shop is a tailor. And they are dragging you in, wanting you to buy their wares. And so I saw one shop that actually had a design I liked. So I went in there. And we were measured up. I was measured up for a shirt, for two shirts. And I was paranoid. There's nothing, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy that likes to go to Tarakash like this shirt and go in there and go, this is a 3XL, I know it's going to fit. Stick it on, fine, it fits, let's go. No, 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 I don't like being measured for things. It feels like it's about an inch too short in their measurements. feels like they're pulling that thing around my neck so tight. You know I'm a 48 neck, right? Yeah, 50, well, you know, 42, you'll be right. No, it's, it's <laughs> speaking in faith. You know, too tight around the way. It, it, it makes me paranoid how they do this measurement. And then they go, all right, we'll have these shirts ready. They'll be ready, ironically, the day before you're due to leave. There's no comeback. When are you leaving? Saturday. Be ready Friday. And we need a deposit, roughly 50%. Now, up front. And all you do is you walk out going, well, that was an experience. I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. And I, at worst, I've lost about 40 bucks. Anything more is bonus. The down payment of the spirit is nothing like my experience in Thailand. There is no, I hope this works out. There is no, oh gee, at worst, well, at least I had a few good times now. It's, oh, there's no nervousness, there's no anxiety. And that's because this down payment is made in the currency of glory, guys. It's, It's the spirit deposited into us to guarantee what it comes and that deposit is a sizable deposit for it is God's Holy Spirit after Jesus died and rose again. There can be no greater thing he can do and set to sweep us up and take us into eternity. So Paul says we now know God like that for the veils of the law, the veils of demonic influence, they've all been taken away. We can now see the greater glory of God through the gospel. And we can take the presence of the Holy Spirit in, around and through us as evidence that the completion of this will one day come. There's no nervous wait. There's great assurance in this.
And in the meantime, we anticipate it and we live by faith, not by sight. Love it. And the byproduct, and I'll invite the band up, we're going to finish with a song. The byproduct of this anticipation and transformation means we begin to live in ways that please God, not ourselves. There is a reason God's law is written on our hearts. There is a reason the Holy Spirit interacts with us. There is a reason we are exposed to greater glimpses of God's glory. It's this. Even though it's a battered old tent, this redeemed dwelling can live in a pleasing way before God through the Spirit. Not perfection, but we can live in a pleasing way before God. We're not a slave to what we once were anymore. We have the Spirit as a down payment, so we're empowered to live in a way that pleases the Lord. In fact, it appears we're expected to because Paul tells us he'll per- we'll personally face the physical risen Christ and we'll be judged over the things we do even while we inhabit this old ragged tent. I'm going to leave it there. I just want to throw some challenges your way real quick. Do we have a view and a perspective of eternity? One of the great Puritans, the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, said this, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Ouch. How does that resonate with us today? Stamp eternity in my heart, in my being, in my outlook. Let me see eternity everywhere I look. Are there things hitting us in our life right now and maybe they're not feeling momentary or not feeling passing. Maybe they're kind of like feeling, feeling a little bit too permanent and they're robbing us of that eternal view. Maybe we are zoomed in too much on our afflictions or our hurts or our struggles. Maybe some of us need to zoom out and see where it's at in comparison to eternity. See God's perspective on the things that we face. Because of newness to come, is there a lifestyle that anticipates that? Do we anticipate what is to come? Is there transformation taking place in us? Is there a shift in the way we talk, how we think, how we feel, how we live, how we react? The spirit in us creates that sort of dynamic. It's a natural byproduct. Transformation is the work of the spirit. Are things of this world capturing our attention a little bit too much? Are the things getting glory that don't belong? And knowing that there will be judgment, what are we doing with the bodies we have now? 
Is there sin that doesn't belong? Is there things going on that we need to get right? Are there things that clearly displease the Lord taking up residence and finding a home in this old ragged tent? Or is the Spirit renewing us day by day as Paul talks about? Are we groaning for temporary things? Are we seeking momentary glory? Or are we fixed with our gaze towards the resurrection life and towards eternity? Let's pray.